to build your kingdom. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for your giving. Thank you for those that show up Wednesday night as we started off our Going Deeper Wednesday night uh, series. We, uh, like Jeff said, this whole message, set of talks that we've had uh, for this Sunday and the next five Sundays is inspired out of the book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And we had a great group out the other night. And there was, I don't know, my wife and I walked away and said there was such a great vulnerability in the room. Uh, Simply sometimes asking the question, where do you struggle in your growth in Christ? And listening to people just give some answers. Uh, Having some vulnerability in, in in that space and realizing that every single one of us, we have challenges, we have things that we go through through, things that can kind of um, hamper our faith or uh, maybe even stop us from even reading the scriptures because of something we grew up with, received, or just sometimes that simple ignorance and having some commonality in the room has been absolutely wonderful. So join us, grab the book, and uh, I've had people say, well, what about the e-books? Go on Amazon, look that up, you get the e-book. Um, I, again, I'm a paper and ink guy. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is where we're going to kind of base our, our talk out of this morning. Um, and I came across a, a number of, of a lists uh, throughout the week. I'm a sucker for a top 10 list. I'm a sucker for um, just a list of this or that. Um, that's what I watch on YouTube a lot. Uh, top 10 reasons why this. Top 10 things. Uh, 10 things you never thought Batman ever did in the comics. Yes, I'm a nerd, so I look at stuff like that. So um, I found this list, hilarious things everybody is secretly guilty of doing. Um, Here's one, carefully inspecting the random item at the grocery store because somebody is standing in front of the actual item that you want. Um, Things that people do, taking a break from the internet on your computer to check the internet on your phone. Hitting the elevator button multiple times. Reading the directions on a box of food, throwing it in the trash, then retrieving it because you've forgotten what you've read already. Eating a family-sized bag of chips all by yourself. Ignoring ignoring emails for weeks, then writing back saying, somehow this ended up in my spam folder. (laughs) None None of you have ever done that. Searching for your phone while holding it in your hand. Seeing an outrageous price on something at the store and pretending you're still considering it. Going to the beach, spending 45 minutes looking for the perfect spot. Buying a week's worth of fresh vegetables and not eating any of it. Pretending not to be disappointed when you get a birthday card without any cash. Writing an angry 9,593-word email to a family member and never hitting send. Pulling back the shower curtain to make sure that there's no serial killers hiding behind it. Getting invested in the conversation that you were eavesdropping on. Secretly diagnosing everybody in the waiting room at your doctor's office. Being extra, extra chatty at the grocery, uh, sorry, being extra chatty at the airport security to give good travel vibes. And, oh, and the last one, lowering the music in your car so that you could see better. So one of my favorite memories was uh, one of my friend Nick's mom drove one of the church vans on one of our youth getaways. And she was, I mean, listen, uh, God bless 
like kids workers, youth workers. I was a youth pastor for 12 years of my life, a youth uh, leader for a little bit longer than that. And I'm telling you, when you're at the end of a retreat, you have zero patience left and you just want to get the kids home and give them back to their parents. And I remember just Mrs. Demisak being so angry because we were all, I, I, we, we knew what she was saying, but the way it came out, she said, would everybody shut up so that I can see? The windows are getting steamed and it just made us that much more irritating. But all of these, this list is, it's, it's the list is the idea of you can't be human and not do these things. You can't be human and just have these tendencies and things that we all do. We don't want to admit that we do. It's just what we do. We're all human and we have the proclivity to have these little extra things that we do. And what I want to talk about today is we sometimes can have a Christianity that is very much Christ-centered, but it's sometimes not cross-centered. We have a Christianity that can come off as Christ-centered, but we cannot have a Christianity that is Christ-centered without it being cross-centered. It's like you can't be human without doing a few things. You can't be a Christian and be fully Christ-centered and not embrace what the work and the power of the cross truly is. And I want us today in our talk and our conversation to really get into this idea of being cross-centered. What does that truly mean? When Jesus says to take up your cross and follow me, what does that follow me truly mean? And so I want to read to you Matthew chapter 16. And it's going to go to verse 15. Let's go back to verse 13. It says this. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now let's hit a little pause button there. What, what, what he is saying is like, who do people say that I am? People say you're one of the prophets, one of the old men of God that have gone and passed and that has come back. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? That's a question that every single one of us have got to come to grips with and we've got to come to admit we have a belief and a stance about Christ. What is our stance about Jesus? And so Peter answers. He's always the first to speak. He is the loudmouth. He is the impulsive one. And he comes out and he says, you are the Christ. In other words, all the prophets that people are talking about, you're the one they all pointed their lives toward. And he utilizes a term, and the term is Christ. Sometimes we would read the word Messiah, and that word is coming from the Old Testament, and that means anointed one, one that has been sent by God. Verse 17, Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. I love that. He says, listen, what you have received is not something you thought up on your own. You had a revelation of the Spirit of God. I love that the Spirit of God loves to speak to us, especially in ways that we don't expect. And I love the fact that we are attending a church and we are together believing that the Spirit of God still speaks. Do you believe the Spirit of God still speaks? I believe He still wants to speak in your life. I still believe He wants to speak over your life. And just like Peter in this moment, He wants to speak through your life. It says the Spirit, that God revealed this to you. And by the way, you are no longer Simon. Your name is Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are some traditions that believe that this is where Peter became the head of the church. 
because Peter means rock. And then we get Jesus saying that upon this rock, I will build my church. But this is where I want to give a little bit of a correction. Because as Jesus says, your name is Peter, that is the word Petros, and it means small rock. Then he says, but upon this rock, the word there is Petra, more than just a cool 80s band. Petra, up oh, Christian jokes, by the way. Upon this rock, so he says, you're Peter, a smaller rock. But upon this rock, now the word rock there, that Petro, is a larger, almost a cliff-like rock, that upon this rock, and I believe he's speaking to himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one in which we live and move and have our being. And I want you to understand that when it comes to any type of Christianity that downplays or subtracts Jesus is not Christianity at all. We are all about Jesus in this place. We look to Jesus. We look to seek Jesus. We want to be all about Jesus. And we're not going to remove Jesus or, who, or how he lived, how he acted, how he challenged us, what he's commissioned us to do. We're going to be a people that are going to be of Jesus. And Jesus says this, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and, and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, can we pause right there? Could you imagine taking Jesus aside to rebuke him? Imagine just, let's go in the earthly. Imagine pulling your boss aside to rebuke your boss. I know you're wanting to do this. Let me tell you how to run your business. Let me, he's taking the son of God. He has just professed, you're the son of God. You're God's anointed one. You're the one sent by God himself. And all of a sudden you said something that I don't like. So let me pull you aside and say, oh, let me help you out a little bit. I didn't want to correct you in front of the rest of the disciples because they don't see what I see and they don't know what I know. But let me fix you, Jesus. How many times do we try to fix Jesus and tell Jesus how to run things and do things? And Joe, we pull, he pulls Jesus aside and says, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Now, when he says the word, get behind me, he didn't just like kick into the curb and say, I'm done with you. I'm done. You're over. But he's trying to say this. I called you to follow me. Now you're wanting me to follow you, so I need you to get where? Behind me and follow me. How often do we get enough of Jesus where we think we know enough and now we just want Jesus to follow us? When we got into this thing, it was not for us to follow Jesus, but for, excuse me, for Jesus to follow us, but for us to follow Jesus. He has called us to follow him. And here Peter is going through a struggle that I believe that many of us in this room either have or will go through, where we will go through this moment where we want to be Jesus-centered, but all of a sudden Jesus goes into a direction for which he doesn't, for which we don't necessarily see, understand, or sometimes even want to go, and we just say, Jesus, hold up, let me tell you how to run things. He begins to embrace Jesus, but he doesn't want to embrace the cross. He embraces Jesus but he doesn't want to embrace the cross. 
Because to be Christ-centered means that we've got to be cross-centered. And if we're going to be cross-centered, we've got to be a people that are willing to engage in some of the toughest challenges of humanity. See, there's a couple ways to try to grow in Christ. And, and, and so we, what we're going to put up is a couple lists here. Um, and this is, I love how this is broken down in the book. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about the world's discipleship and Jesus' discipleship. Because they're two different things. The world will say, be popular. That's what we go after. Go be popular. Be great. Go viral. Go social. Get out there and get your name out there. Secondly, why do we go popular? It's so that we can become great. And as we can make a name for ourselves and, and we can do great things. I'm not against doing great things, but I'm here to say that that's never supposed to be the drive of our heart. We've got the world that tells us, go out and be successful. And I'm here to say, we have incredible pressure to be successful. We have incredible pressure on our shoulders. Your students that are in high school, I remember when we were going through freshman orientation for our daughter, she's our oldest, and I remember the pressure on her to make a decision, like what do you want to do with your life because we've got to organize all your high school classes and if you make the wrong decision, you're not going to be set up and all of a sudden I've got a 14-year-old daughter, a 15-year-old daughter that is crushed underneath the weight that I have to be successful and if I don't, I'm going to do it wrong and I'm going to disappoint everybody. And then lastly... Avoid suffering and failure. Now let's be real. None of us go chasing after failure. None of us go chasing after suffering. But there is a beauty that can actually come through times of pressure. Times of failure. Times of brokenness that you can't learn or experience anywhere else. Because the way of Jesus is so absolutely contrary to anything. Because where we have get pop, be popular, Jesus says reject the need to be popular. Be popular with me. Instead of being great, reject the need to be great. Instead of being successful, reject that successionism and be successful with me. Instead of avoiding suffering failure, lean into your pain. I think something that we do wrong in the church, and I've been, I'll say, I, I know I'm guilty of it, is when we talk about pain, we always talk about don't give up because your breakthrough could be right around the corner. And listen, that could be true, and I do believe that's true. But for some of us, we say that, and we ignore that pain side, not understanding that there, it could be purpose in your pain. And instead of, instead of encouraging people, just get to the end, just get to the end. Understand that you may be going through pain and suffering right now. God doesn't waste those moments. God doesn't waste those opportunities. That God may want to grow you in that pain and through that pain and utilize it for his honor and for his glory. Mark chapter 9, verse 35 says, Jesus sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. What I love about this verse is this is so contrary to what our culture and what I might even say cultural Christianity has become. Where our culture, our Americanized Jesus, we've got to be first. And, we've, and if we are successful in our eyes, then obviously we must be successful in God's eyes. But I'm here to say that the American dream is not the kingdom dream. We get chasing the Americanized Jesus, not realizing that the American Jesus is not the same Jesus that everybody else sees. We've Americanized the cross. We've Americanized Christianity instead of getting back to being all about Jesus. But if you're going to be about Christ, you can't just be Christ-centered. You have to be cross-centered. And so we're going to break down Jesus' version of discipleship this morning. So I hopefully, hopefully you're taking notes today. I hope that you grab the book. You dive in deeper into this. Come out on Wednesday. We'll have a blast, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. So if there are four ways to get yourself 
cross-centered. I want to be a cross-centered church. Number one, write this down. Be popular versus reject popularity. Be popular versus reject popularity. We need to be the type of people that, listen, I don't mind having popularity, but there's a difference between I have popularity and popularity has me. We are centered upon recognition. We are centered upon getting followers, getting likes, getting somebody to follow us, getting somebody to friend us on Facebook, getting somebody to follow us on Instagram, somebody to like it. If I post something and nobody double taps it, nobody likes it, what does that say about me? Who sees me? Who recognizes me? And we chase against popularity. In fact, this is one of the things that, that, the, that the devil tried tempting Jesus with. Jesus went out into the wilderness. I mean, get a hold of this. Imagine getting baptized in water, and then going for 40 days into a wilderness and being tempted by Satan himself. Some of us complain about going into Monday morning after getting baptized. Jesus went into a wilderness led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. And one of the temptations there in Matthew chapter 4 is that Satan tried to tempt him by, by exercising power so that he could become popular. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle, and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they shall bear you unless you and strike you uh, and strike your foot against the stone. In other words, go to the pinnacle where everyone gathers, jump off so that people can see the angels catch you, lower you, and everybody will know you. And Jesus speaks against them in that moment. There is just something about popularity that has become the emotional heroine of our lives. And once we taste it, we begin to chase it. We gotta be popular. That's why I love what Pete Cazero says. He says, Jesus denounced any activity that had traces of seeking the approval and the and admiration of others. That's why he says, he tells, tells the disciples, listen, tell nobody that I'm the Christ. That sounds counterintuitive, but there's a reason why. Because every time Jesus healed somebody, every time Jesus had um, performed a miracle or he was teaching and then he told people, don't go tell anybody, why did he not want them to tell? Because he knew that they were, they were to tell other people and begin to rally a rebellion because I, the idea was the Christ will come not to save us in the spiritual, in the spiritual sense. He's going to come overthrow the government. And we're going to rise up and do a rebellion the way we think it should be done. Jesus rejects popularity. He rejects the idea that I have to be loved and known by everybody in this earthly sense. And we've got to get to the place where we've got to be okay that not everybody is going to like us. In fact, you need to tell your neighbor right now, not everyone's going to like you. And I'm one of them. Don't say that whatsoever. Some of us have just got to get over that fact. Not everyone's going to like you. I've got people in this city that love me. I've got, a, I've got a group of people in this city that cannot stand me. And they like to let me know that. I'm here to say that popularity in the culture says this is what pushes you and drives you. But in the kingdom of God, reject the idea of I've got to be popular with man. Lord, help me to, help me to live within your gaze. Help me to live within your sight. Secondly, be great versus reject greatnessism. Reject greatnessism. You gotta be great 
Or Jesus would show you, reject greatnessism. What I love about Jesus is when you look at Jesus from the beginning to end, in the earthly sense, there really wasn't much great about Jesus. Now some of you, that rubs you really wrong right now. But if you look in Isaiah chapter 43, you'll see that the prophetic word about Jesus was, it says in Isaiah 53 verse 2, that if you looked upon him, it was nothing to scream about. Or to write home, like he was this most majestic looking human being. This is different from in the Old Testament when Saul was chosen as king. They looked at Saul and they said he is head to tail above everybody else. His look, his countenance, everything about him. He just came off this way. But with Jesus, when he was born, Jesus was born in a scandal. In fact, he was born in a barn, a cave. And in the moment of this idea of the Messiah could be born, the local authorities wanted to kill all of the children, and so they had to, Jesus had to run off and live in, in another country. He had to immigrate to get out of that place to save his life, and his parents moved back. And then, even then when he started his ministry, he started his ministry, and people looked at him, and he was speaking, he was preaching. They're like, who is this guy? He is just a carpenter's son. We know his background. He went to his home village and there's play, there, he couldn't perform miracles. Why? Because of their lack of faith. And so people were looking at them like, he doesn't seem great. And then you look at the, the 12 people that he chose. Let's be real. If we were to look at Jesus in the moment he chose his 12 disciples, you would say, Jesus, never ever write a leadership book. Do a study on those 12 guys. Because these 12 guys would have been in their vocations with their family for one reason. This is the reason. They were passed up because other rabbis looked and said they don't have it. So now they, have to, they, they need to go and work in their family's vocation. There's nothing special about these 12 guys. And so from the earthly, Jesus, it didn't look great. When it came to even some, he'd go do miracles and miracles weren't happening in some villages because they didn't have the faith. It seemed like there's... The greatness that we would want him to do. I mean, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone's waving palm branches because the last time somebody rode into Jerusalem, it was the Maccabees. They waved palm branches because they knew a revolt's going to happen. This, the, uh, we're going to raise up an army and overthrow the government. And Jesus came in not on a stallion, but on a donkey. And he didn't do anything close to what they did. And that's why all of a sudden they go from singing his praises to crying out, crucify him. He wasn't great in their eyes. And that's why when we reject greatnessism, we go to this place where we look at life not through the eyes of the world, but we look at it through the eyes of Jesus because we begin to see when we live underneath his greatness and we allow his greatness to come upon him, we begin, we begin to live to make sure that he is great and not ourselves. Great, we think in this day and age, is such a motivator. Case in point. When Ethan was five or six years old, I signed him up for flag football. Why? Because he's a Behringer, and this is what he's supposed to do. Hopefully he would start more than I did. And we had a fun year. I don't know if you've ever coached flag football for five- and six-year-old boys. It's like herding cats. There's no difference whatsoever. It's like, quit picking the dandelions. Or this one boy, he loved to run the wrong direction. Ethan was always the center. He'd hike the ball, and the kid would run in the other direction. And I'm like, on the field, go the other direction. He's looping around, running around. That's the touchdown. And you're not supposed to keep score. Guess what we parents do? We keep score. And at the end of the year, I wanted to make sure that when Ethan finished, now, now granted, let me give you a little, little understanding about my heart. I do not believe that every child deserves a trophy just for doing the sport. 
I do not believe that we should give children ribbon and trophies just because they participated. I am that guy. But I knew Ethan didn't really enjoy football the way that I enjoyed football, so I made sure when he ended the season, I went out and made a trophy for him. Do you know why? Because if I do what my dad wants and I'm made to feel great, then perhaps I can do that again. And if I can do something else, maybe dad will think I'm great again. Maybe dad will think I'm great again. If I do this for God, maybe God will think I'm great again. Maybe if I perform this, maybe if I show up at the church, maybe if I get involved, we trace being great. I want you to know something today. God thinks you're great. He thinks you're wonderful. Does, he th- does that mean you don't have to change? No. There's probably a lot of things he'd love to change about you. <laughs> But I want you to understand something. We get chasing after great. And greatism says, how do I make myself great? How do I make me great? How do I do great things? And what Jesus simply says this is be great in my ways. Be great in me. Don't worry about the name that you're trying to make. Don't worry about the notoriety that you're trying to make. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Just be great in my eyes. You want to know what greatness in Jesus looks like? It's one word, obedience. Boy, I I love, I, I went and spoke at North Point Bible College, and I love talking to North Point Bible College students because the idea is sometimes, so often, us, us in Bible College, we chafed at, chase after pulpits. We chase after opportunities. If I can just get into this big church, if I can get into this big opportunity, and my biggest thing that I implore Bible College students that I would implore you is stop chasing after opportunities. Chase after Jesus and do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And the question that we got to ask ourselves is this. Are my ambitions for my glory or for the glory of God? Stop being great in what everybody says you ought to be great in. Reject greatnessism and be great in Jesus. Number three, be successful versus reject success and successism. Now, when I talk about not being successful, am I saying that you, you get to slack off at work? Please don't do that. I'm going to have a lot of people unemployed uh, contacting me saying, what did you say to me? Uh, listen, whatever you do, do with all your might. Whatever you do, be faithful. Be a hard worker. Be devoted. Be kind. W- have a great work ethic. Man, we could preach a whole message just about work ethic. That, to me, is it's what my parents handed down. It's what I wanted to hand down to my kids. Good work ethic. I'm not saying that you can't or should never be successful at what you do. But you got to understand that sometimes we live into the success of what the world says rather than the success and what Jesus says. I talked about this a little bit last Wednesday night, is that when COVID hit this world, and specifically the nation and the church itself, there's something that preachers have had to get out of their brains, is the idea that when we go to conferences, we ask each each other this, how big's your church? Oh, been driving driving me nuts for 25 years. How big's your church? Because we get the idea of my identity based upon the size of the church, but since COVID, can I tell you what no pastors are asking each other any longer? Because COVID decimated church. It decimated attendance. And all of a sudden, pastors, we're doing a little behind the veil here, behind the curtain with pastors. All of a sudden, pastors are having to ask themselves, what is my identity actually on? With Jesus, the disciples, they looked at Jesus and they had an idea about what he ought to do. And their idea was that you have got to lead us against Rome. So therefore, the cross is not where we need to go. 
That's what Peter says. Let me pull you aside, Jesus. Let me correct you because you want to go in a direction, but there's, that's not the success that we want. You want to talk about another drug of choice in America. It's success. And then we get, success, we get all of a sudden our identity about what is successful and what, not, what isn't successful. But success is simply this. It is becoming who God has called you to be, doing what God has called you to do in the way he's called you to do it according to his timetable. Some of y'all need to write that down. You need to put that on the front page of your Bible. When you go to pray and you're spending time with the Lord this week, I want you to say, God, I want to know success in you. It's becoming who God has called you to be, doing what he has called you to do, and the way he's called you to do it according to his timetable. But pastor, the, what God has called me to do is, with, is to minister to one person or to two people. What about the group? What about the, what about the crowd? Then minister to the one or the two people. Because if numbers is a major category of success, then Jesus wasn't successful whatsoever. Jesus poured into 12, one of which who would turn him in, one of 12 of which, 11 of which, which would basically abandon him and then come back. But pouring into that 12, God did something miraculous. Be faithful with where God has called you. And don't worry about the advancement. I'll tell you, when God called me into ministry, all I wanted to do, I knew God called me to preach. And guess what? It was years before I preached the message. Why? Because I had a youth pastor that had the insight enough to say, it's not time to speak, it's time to serve. It's time to simply serve. Cross-centered. It's not about making a name for ourselves. It's about making a name for Jesus. And my prayer is that every single one of us would look at our lives and not compare it with somebody else. Listen, in America, we compare success with somebody else. We compare metrics with somebody else. Some of us have got to get the heart of Jesus and recognize that if you are being obedient, you're just as successful as anybody else in this world. Be successful at what God's called you to be by doing what he's told you to do in the way he's told you to do it in the timetable that he has set up. And lastly, being cross-centered. Avoid suffering or failure versus leaning into it. Leaning, leaning into it. Oh, pastor, are you promoting that we need to be full of pain and chasing pain? Listen, I, I'm not that type of person. I don't go into situations like, oh, this is gonna be painful. I cannot wait for this moment. If that's you, uh, please join us in the prayer room after the service. It's right down this hall. We'll, 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 we'll deal with that. We'll, we'll pray through that. But cross-centered says, I lean into pain. I lean into suffering. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes these words. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, being like him, in his death. Some translations say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I mean, how many of us have ever heard that quoted in a message before? I want to know Christ. None of you have been in any of my messages. Hallelujah. That's great. I want to know Christ. We have people that print that on their shoes and their sports shoes right next to I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. But what's funny is we love the first part of this verse that I would know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. We could preach that. We can get revival going on that because how many of us just want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection? Anybody want that? Say amen. And then we get to the other part that says, oh, wait a minute. And share in his sufferings being like him in death. How many of you want that? Say amen. Crickets, crickets, crickets. 
don't know why my voice did that. Like puberty hit me all of a sudden. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power. And Lord Jesus, I also want to know about the suffering. I want to know about the pain. Paul doesn't just stop at resurrection power. He recognizes that when it comes to Christianity, the Christianity that only embraces the power and the resurrection is actually an incomplete Christianity because we can't have resurrection without a death. It's hard to have breakthrough unless there's something to be broken through. And in this world, suffering, the idea of, for some of us, being rejected, ignored, minimized, dismissed, some of us have gone through suffering in this world and we've never known what to do with it and, and we tell people, I'm going through pain, I'm going through suffering, I'm going through rejection and you know what, well, just pray about it, just pray about it. Pray that God releases you from it but I would even offer a different mode of life, a different MO where Jesus wouldn't say ignore it or reject it. I wonder if Jesus were here would just say, listen, don't reject it, lean into it. Lean into it. Why? Because when we lean into our pain, we lean into the suffering. It's not because we enjoy it, because when we lean into it, we actually become vulnerable to God. I want to say that again. To lean into pain, to suffering. And what does suffering look like? For some of you, it is rejection. For some of you, it's being ignored, maybe even minimized. Listen, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, I know what it's like to take a punch across the jaw. I've taken plenty of them. And I'm here to say, and maybe it's my own temperament, I would rather take a punch across the jaw than be rejected by a person. I feel like I can recover from a fist a lot quicker than I can recover from my heart being attacked. And when it comes to this idea of going through pain and suffering, we get to the place where we want to just set that aside and we want to ignore it. Or we've, I've heard versions of Christianity that say, don't admit that you're in pain. You're giving power to your pain. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. That makes me so angry. Because when we admit we are in pain to Jesus, let me give you a word this morning. You're not giving power to your pain. You're exposing it to Jesus. When you are in agony, expose it to Jesus. When you're in suffering, expose it to Jesus. Some of you, your suffering is not physical, it's not, not emotional, and it's not mental, it's not spiritual. For some of you, there is physical suffering there. Don't hide that from the Lord. Don't ignore it. Show it to Jesus. That's leaning into the pain and allowing him to come into those moments and help us win those moments. For when we are weak, he can become strong. And to embrace the cross, it's doing more than recognizing what Jesus did when he died for our sins. But it gives us that moment where, wow, there is some death. There is some failure. There is some moments that we've got to face in our life. And instead of ignoring it and, and, and thinking we're giving power to it, what if we actually leaned into it? Well, pastor, I failed. What are you talking about leaning into your failure? I'm talking about not ignoring it and resting it into the hands of the Lord, saying, Lord, I failed. But Lord, where I failed, I need you to redeem me. I need you to restore me me. God, I've got this pain. Let me put it at your, your feet because I don't know what to do with it, but I need your healing. I need your virtue. God, I've been rejected and I don't know what to do with this, Lord, but in you I am accepted. I am loved. I am cared for. We've got to stop chasing that which the world tells us to chase. Boy, 
Just avoid pain. Avoid fear. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Avoiding it does nothing other than trying to make ourselves look good. But we have got a world of Christians trying to make themselves look well. But what if we were just to be human? What if we were just to admit those shortcomings? Admit those painful moments? Admit the failures? What if we were just to be real with God and to be real before people? I promise, we're not gonna do, it's not going to do anything to the name of Jesus. It's going to lift Jesus up. We can't hide failures any longer. We shouldn't hide our pain any longer. Does it mean that we have to live in it as victims? No. But there's a difference between I'm being victimized by my pain and I'm going to be victorious in my pain because of the work and the power of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is a Christ-centered and a cross-centered Christianity. It's not ignoring it. It's embracing the work of the cross. If I can have my keyboardist come. Gabe, if you can come join me. You see, God has called us beyond a doctrinal faith in Christ. He's called us beyond an intellectual faith in Christ. He's called us into what we call an incarnational faith. A faith that is alive and active. And a faith that is alive and active, it doesn't ignore pain. It doesn't ignore failure. It doesn't ignore brokenness. It doesn't ignore rejection. But it leans into it to say, Lord, I'm leaning into this moment because I'm gonna ask that you, I'm gonna be vulnerable and ask that you come and meet me in that moment. Jesus is not after the, to redeem the fake you. He's after the real you. He's after the real you. Because suffering and loss, failure doesn't eliminate from us from Jesus. It helps us to be vulnerable with him. It helps us to get real with him. It's something we used to say a lot in the 90s and 80s. When I finally got real with Jesus. When I stopped being fake with Jesus. We got to get back to saying that. It's time for us to get real with God and begin to admit, well, I just want other people to see those failures. Well, you know what? That sounds great. That sounds wonderful. But it's not doing anything for anybody, including yourself. You're not protecting the testimony of Jesus. You're just covering up and putting on one more mask, one more mask. And the world doesn't need any more masked up Christianity. They need people, Christians, who are real before God and the world. Ready to show this is Jesus. Because avoiding your pain isn't being strong. Leaning into it helps us to be vulnerable. And when we are finally real with Jesus, that's where transformation happens. That's where transformation happens. Ladies and gentlemen, let's stop try, just going after popularity. Let's stop going after trying to be great in other people's eyes. Let's stop chasing the idea of success to make other people look at us and be so proud of us. Let's stop, reject the failure or, or, or the, the suffering and things that have been lingering outside of our doors thinking if we can ignore the pain enough, it's just going to go away. Peter says to Jesus, no, 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 don't go after that hard stuff. Do it the way we think you ought to be doing it. And Jesus says, listen, you're following a different line of thought. I need you to get behind me and do what? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Because as we follow Jesus, the cross is always going to be endured. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that means there needs to be death. Boy, there's something that we don't shout about. Don't expect a lot of amens to that one. Because when we follow Jesus, 
we begin to understand that the things that we started chasing after, popularity, greatness, successionism, successism, excuse me, the idea of avoiding failure, those things just have to start dying. In the church world, we talk, we talk about dying to our own selves. I gotta die to my idea that I have to be great in order for God to love me and for others to love me. I have to be successful in other people's eyes in order to be valued. I gotta be popular. I can't show vulnerability. I can't show my pain. But Jesus says, listen, give that to me. Invite me in. We gotta be cross-centered. We gotta be Christ-centered because it's there where freedom and hope is found. I love the word out of Psalm chapter 71, verse five. For you are my hope, O Lord. You are my confidence from my youth. Do you need hope today? Hope is gonna be found in Christ. Hope is found in who he is. Hope is not found in how great you think you can become. The name that you can uh, develop to get popularity. Hope is not found in anything that you think that you are. Hope is found in Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me today?